Hey, are you looking to evolve to a higher level of existence? To practically harness spirituality and personal growth in a crazy, busy, imperfect world? Then you've come to the right place. My name is Prash and this is Urban Spirituality, the show which fuses ancient wisdom with contemporary spiritual practices to deliver value-adding tools, traits, and insights to help you live your fullest potential. We always keep it real, featuring authentic, unfiltered dialogue with guests from diverse backgrounds to inspire, entertain, and enlighten all who listen. So get ready for your dose of urban spirituality. Be present and let's dive in. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Urban Spirituality Walk on the Wise Side show. I'm your host, Prash K, with a cold and a man flu. And still pushing on because I kind of care about you guys. I want to give love. I want to share good messages with good people, from good people. And one such good person is the fine lady to my right. I think where you're looking on Facebook. (laughs) I normally have a long, big introduction, which I lovingly do. But I feel for Dulcie, somebody who has been through something quite unique. And who has at the same time faced challenges that some of us can easily relate to. But the way she's dealt with them, the way she's turned her life around is so visceral, so fresh, so real, that I feel that the only way to do justice is to allow her to introduce herself. My special guest, who has been on podcasts, along on this podcast too, who's been interviewed, reviewed revered and and looked up to by many, many people, both in the UK and abroad, the survivor who is thriving. Please show your love for the wonderful one and only Tulsi Wigjani. Hi, everyone. Um, Thank you so much for having me on here. Um, The introduction just kind of gave it all away, right? Hey, hey. (laughs) there's loads to say. No, but um, thank you so much for this opportunity and, you know, tapping in with people that we both know, actually. Um, uh, well, I'm Dulce, I'm 39, um, brought up in London. Um, I wouldn't say I had any kind of special upbringing or anything, you know, pretty normal childhood as normal can be. Um, great loving family, um, lots of abundance of family, actually, you know, really blessed, actually, lots of cousins and extended family um very down to earth grounded you know just working and yeah really good um i wouldn't say i was positive nor negative i was just being um and then i think from a very young age um so especially family who are watching this can actually um verify this but from a young age i was always i got into trouble quite a lot which may shock some of you. I mean, I look like an angel. <laughs> but, of course. <laughs> but um, I always got into trouble because I was always standing up for things that never felt right. But yeah. I didn't know at the time that this is what was going to happen along the line 20, 30 years later. So in the playground, if something I saw some sort of injustice happening, I had to step in. I just couldn't leave it alone. So remembering a lot of my time outside the head teacher's office. And it sounds funny when I say that, but that's where I am now. So it feels really weird. I'm on a full circle at the moment. 360, right? 360 all the way. And I'm just coming home to who I'm supposed to be. And here I am. Welcome, Dulcie. So with time being precious, fast forward for us to what... I think many already have a glimpse of could be your most challenging ordeal and a most unexpected ordeal that you've faced. Yeah. I mean, so like, yeah, growing up from a great family and grounded and one day, like, you know, getting excited to go um, to India for a holiday and uh, visiting my dad's grandfather. So my Were you in your twenties? Were you in your twenties? I 20s? was 10 years old at the time. 10 years so old. I was in primary, yeah. Primary school. I'm really excited, Um, got to India, saw my family. And then um, back in that time, so you're talking 1990 now, um, we lost our luggage. And back then, you know, they didn't deliver luggage to your house or where you were staying. We had to go and collect it in Mumbai. Right. So we decided, well, we'll go to Mumbai. We'll start traveling south of India. 
Um, my brother and myself, um, so he was six years younger than me. He was, um, must have been about four or so. Four at the time, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we were excited to go Goa because, you know, we heard about beaches. Of course. Um, but my parents decided we're going to go Bangalore first and then we'll go to Goa. And February 14th, 1990, you know, you can't forget that date. That's got to be the most life-changing experience of my life when I lost my family and my brother in a plane crash. Um, the plane landed as it, um, plane crashed as it was landing into Bangalore airport. Um, I have no recollection of anything post-accident. Um, wow. The only memory I really have is me fighting with my brother because I wanted to sit by the window. Sure. And because he was the youngest, he got his way as always. And you know, the older person always has to be more understanding. Well, yeah. So because it's the first time I saw blue skies and green fields and it's not something you see every day, especially yeah. living in the UK, right? Blue skies is a rare thing. Completely. Um, so yeah, we fought. And then the next kind of recollection I have is my grandmother my grandmother, my grandmother was the one who I left behind in the UK, but her voice was so close to me, like not how we are, where we are on you know, the other end of a phone call. But in the ether, like subtly. It was really clear, like she was right next to me. And I was thinking, well, why is she here? What is she saying? Why is she crying? And if anyone knew my grandma, you know, she was very strong. She wasn't one to give away her emotions. And she's telling me, you know, you've been in an accident, you look different, um, you've lost your family. I, I mean, none of this is making sense. Um, I can hear lots of machines in the background, so I'm presuming that's all like the life support machines and, you know, and due to the emergency that's happened, I'm guessing it's all going on. It's not registering. I mean, what is she saying that I look different? How can I look different? In my heart and mind, I actually believe she was there like a surprise, you know, um, surprise that she's come to join us. That she astrally traveled. I think this is the term that we'd use in spiritual science, metaphysics, her astral yeah. body projected itself all those thousands of miles to be with you. Well, no, she was actually at the um, hospital at this point. So her and my granddad actually okay. flew out of India. They flew out. Yeah. So that's why it felt surreal that she was so near me. And I, in that, you can only imagine, you know, getting an emergency flight from the UK, then traveling to India. It must have taken at least 12, 13 hours from the point of accident. So I have no time concept of from the accident to what's going on now. Grandmother being there. Um, then the next voice I now hear is a young medic. And he's just said, look, I'm going to look after you. There's been an emergency. He sounded really young, like, such early 20s or if not uh, you know much younger than that and you can see he was frantic I mean he this was actually one of his first point you know like um he one of his first posts after graduating so to see this massive accident must just be so surreal so he's trying to keep me calm then the next kind of recollection I really have now is traveling back to the UK with a another family who were also on the on the aeroplane who we never knew we never met we didn't know anything until that moment um because that lovely gentleman is the one who pulled me out from the plane because he was looking for his family um they're from london um we flew back to the uk i was then flown back then i was flown to a burns unit in essex right and that's now where another chapter begins because I now start hearing other family members speaking to me. Um, my aunties, cousins, you know. I'm saying, hang on, what's going on now? Like, why is everyone joining me in India? Because it still hasn't hit me that, that I've lived in India. Yeah. I'm in UK. I've got no concept of time. Or, 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 or space, clearly. Or space, anything. All I know is there's voices that are very familiar. And close by to you. Close by. And they're, again, saying the same thing, you know, with sort of holding back the tears and the emotions of their loss, you know, because it's their sister, their brother, their niece, their nephew. And literally, it's 
I'm just, what is going on? I, I literally did feel at that point they've come to surprise me in India and join us on this holiday. But when they're saying you look different, your mum and dad are not here anymore, um, you're in hospital and you've got burns. What do burns even look like? I had no idea. And when someone says you look different, I mean, what's looking different? If you colour your hair, that looks different. But they said you actually look really different. Right. Um, six weeks post-accident now, so I've, been, I've had lots of skin grafts, in and out of surgery, you know, many times being resuscitated. So that's all gone in six weeks. Um, I've now had the opportunity to see myself because I now removed the bandages from my eyes. Right. I think when, I guess when your sight is taken, you use other senses, but it's quite daunting because so because much is going on around me, but I can't you, see. Yeah. Um, I could hear voices. And then, yeah, they removed the bandages and, you know, she, the nurse said, are you sure you want to see yourself? I said, yeah, what's the big deal? I mean, everyone says I look different, but how, how much different can I really look? Um, and prior to that, I was never really obsessed with how I looked. I didn't really care, you know. It's not something I thought of at the age of 12. I mean, 10. Right. Yeah. So the nurse brings in this mirror and they kind of prepare me like the consultants, make sure I'm okay. They hold this mirror and I'm yeah. like, this person staring back at me is not me. Who is this? I literally thought somebody drew that on because that face looked horrendous. That's not me. Unrecognizable. Completely. But when that person in the mirror blinked and smiled or moved their face, that was me. That was you. That was me. And it's at that precise moment that I think everything that people had been telling me, like about the loss change, it all just made sense. It all sunk in. It all sunk in. And, but in my heart and my head, I really felt that it's going to go away couple of more weeks or months in surgery in and out of hospital it's gonna be like this magic clean sheet and the scars are gonna disappear this is not permanent is what i had in my mind um hospital was great because you know it's a secure place um, no one's judging me everyone i'm just dorsey you know um i was quite a bit of a joker back then and even in hospital it was the same thing you know silly sense of humor um pretty life and soul you know people want to talk to me I wanted to talk to them um had loads of visitors constantly so I thought it's great this is brilliant you know there's I, I can get used to this and besides my scars aren't going to be long term which is what that, I that was the, that was the story that you sold yourself that was the story that you believed that's it so that got me through and then the the day was where I'm going to get discharged and back into reality, back into society. I thought, well, I've got this because everyone in hospital is great. You know, surely the world outside is going to be the same, no? I mean, why should it be any different? I don't know any different. Well, you know, it will change when the journey to and from hospital or to and from school or to my local shops is where the staring started, where people crossed the road, where the name calling started. And I actually never knew the word ugly until those moments. I didn't even know what it meant. Oh, I, didn't I didn't have. And I in mean, such a young age, uh, in such formative years, you were only, you know, you were not, you were barely 11. Yeah. To have that thrown at you. Yeah. And because was, again, like I didn't know what the word ugly meant, whether it was positive or negative. I didn't have an understanding of that. So it's only when I looked in the dictionary and I realized like if this is how people are seeing me, surely that's who what I must be. So that is the title I pretty much I mean that was a word I carried around for a very long time. And you can imagine that if I'm attracting those type of words, there were other negative words that I was attracting at the time. <clears throat> and I led myself to believe that's who I was. You know, ugly, useless, worthless, those kind of words. And externally, if people saw me, they presumed I was very confident and I've dealt with things very well. Right. Because I smiled a lot. Um, I don't know if that was my coping mechanism or if that was just who I was naturally. Like, I guess it was yeah. a bit of both. Maybe a bit of both. 
bit of both. But mm. you could never, I guess I was a great poker face because I never gave anything away. So how I was feeling inside was not what I was reflecting outside so much. Um, and yeah, times passed, you know, been in and out of hospital and um, started secondary school. For me, school has got to be one of my most amazing memories because the friendships I've formed are still strong today. You know, and what's magical, no one, I, I know they've been prepared, they've been prepared the day before I started school, that this is what she's going to look like. This is what she's going to have to wear. Just make friends with her. Don't ignore her, you know. And that was it. And literally, as soon as I started secondary school, I made the most most amount of friends. Like I said, till today, they're still my friends. If any of my school friends watching, hi. <laughs> Thank you so much. But um, they made school so much more fun and bearable. They made the loss bearable. Because suddenly I did Feel belong. That. You know, I belonged to something belong to something and people around you. Did you, did you have a sense that although your, your immediate family were no longer, you know, physically with yeah. you anymore, that the people around you, whether that be at school or some of your extended family members, yeah. did, did they in a sense kind of make up for it by just being caring and not kind of judging you? Did that help? Did that play a part in it? Oh, big time. I mean, you know, they've all accepted me for who I was anyway. It was me who had to accept me. Amazing. That's such a powerful insight. And can I just, can I just interrupt you for a minute? Because I think that is such a profound thing to, for people to get. If somebody, and Thulsi, I'm just, I hope you don't mind me saying it. I'm really passionate about this point that if we are craving people to care about us, to love us, uh, to be cherished and for romance to come our way or the relationships that we have to become magnified. Guess what? If we can't do that for ourselves, if we can't learn to accept ourselves, then that will never give us the fulfillment that we cherish. Never. It just can't. It won't. It just won't. Because, you know, like, like I said, you know, they, I mean, my family, bless them, they had a lot longer to to cope with the way I looked because yeah. obviously they couldn't see me. Um, but, you know, they're fighting their own stuff. You know, they're lost. They've got they're, their own loss. They've got their emotion, the emotional attachment that they had with those in, with your family. And, you know, if we're talking about, you know, almost 30 years ago, it wasn't open to share your emotions and loss and talk about grief. And, and you know, I guess, I mean, especially coming from some you know, cultural backgrounds where we all have different rituals about death and bereavement. It's not something we talk about. It's not something no. we express. So no. bearing in mind with that is what they were doing and then being strong for me and then attending to me every single day from February mm. till June when I left hospital, every single day with young children. I mean, how did they do it? I can't, I don't even know. I couldn't even answer that, but gratitude going out to them because to look back on that, it's phenomenal. You know, they've got their own stuff going on. It, and yet they were your rocks. They, they, they were rocks for you. Completely. And at the time, you don't know that because end of the day, you just still want your mum and dad. You know, regardless of what amazing things are around you, it's still just not the same. However, you know, I'm so grateful because I had that. It could have been a lot worse. Mm -hmm. It could have been a lot worse where I woke up and completely lonely. And that wasn't the case. But, you know, I mean, fast forward that, you know, they, they, they accepted me. They never saw my scars. They saw me, but I didn't see me because all I kept seeing was my scars. That's all I could see. I couldn't see the caring nature that I was. I couldn't see the intelligent person I was. I couldn't see any of that because that's all I thought I was, was this scar, one big mass scar. Um, and you know, surgery being in and out of surgery, it was part and parcel of it. Um, but then, you know, I did well. Like, I, you know, I just got on with school. I got on with hospital. Right. And I had an opportunity to go to a Burns camp when I left school um, in 1995 because now sort of the team at the hospital, one particular nurse, Pat, she was very passionate about rehabilitation for children because once she left hospital, that was it you know, you were sort of thrown into society. There was nothing there 
as a support system. So she wanted to set up this Burns camp um, for young children. We went to America and, you know, this is the first time I had a huge wake up call because I saw young children like 12, 13, or if not younger, we were doing one of the activities was rock climbing. Right. And, you know, you have sales, so you have all the equipment on. I was more stressed about how the equipment looked <laughs> right. than actually doing this. The fear of. of how stupid that looked. Yet there was this one boy, one of his lower limbs were missing. Like, I mean, you know, he'd been amputated in an accident. He just climbed that rock and he came down with such confidence and ease. And I thought, he's got... Nice. I've got everything. I've got my hands, my fingers. I've got everything. What have I got to be complaining about? Really? Love that. And here he was just living life to whatever he, whatever he had, right? He made the most of it. And he just smiled his way. He laughed his way through it. And I still couldn't do it. I still so I managed to climb the rock. Right. But I calm down. The fear just got me. The fear just... Yeah, completely got me. And But then the other activities that we did after, I participated in. It's not something I would have done before. And that kind of thing now is where it started from. That seed started then when I started to take on a lot more activities than what I, what I thought I couldn't do because of the fear. And I kept saying, well, you've survived a plane crash. What is this like in comparison? It's nothing. And... That got me through to some tough days. Um, you know, I got through college pretty well. Um, I mean, fast forwarding all of that, 2006 was another life-changing moment. Do you think just when you've had one big life-changing moment, there's wham, bam, got thrown another one. Right. And so now I'm at university I'm studying applied health sciences loving university because first time again I found something I'm really passionate about passionate really, about. I can imagine me helping people which is what I've always wanted to do as a career but I just didn't quite know what mm. um and then I was like right I started to visualize I can help people and that's when I trained in Pilates mm-hmm. so that passion grew um, I learned a lot about anatomy physiology just the structure of the body and mm-hmm. Sitting in a lecture hall, if anyone out there, you know, been through university and those lecture halls are so stuffy and old and grim. Well, I felt really sick and dizzy and I thought, this is very unusual. I've never felt this before. Went to my GP mm-hmm. and he said, you've got high blood pressure. And I thought, oh, good God, like, he goes, are you stressed? I said, don't seem particularly that stressed. Right. And he goes, well, because I don't know what it could be but it goes um let's just get the blood test going and we'll find out nothing to yeah. worry about did the blood test and you know in blood tests you know, they take about two weeks to get the results back in those days they did yeah yeah um and so i thought okay fine and then did the test but over the next few days just didn't feel any better they gave me they started me on blood pressure tablets just to sort yeah. of start the process obviously they don't kick in straight away well, that was on the Thursday I did my blood test. Monday, still feeling rough, went back to the GP. As soon as I got to the GP, my blood results arrived. That's four days, including a weekend. So I thought, this is serious now, because that doesn't come back that fast. And um, the GP goes, okay, look, your creatinine levels are quite high. I said, I have no idea what that even means. So he goes, well, you could be, you've got a kidney infection, or it might be a long-term issue with your kidneys. I was like, kidneys? I mean, how, why, how? Like, I've never had any issues. He goes, well, unfortunately, with young people, it's one of the silent diseases, so you wouldn't know until... Until it kind of came upon you. Unless you've known from a young age, like if you've got an autoimmune disease or something. Yeah, then, yeah. They they, they normally look at the renal function and uh, your renal profile and there's a safe range. And it sounds like at the time your safe range was way exceeded. No, it's not safe. (laughs) Right. And then I got to hospital. He goes, look, I know somebody in A&E. He rushed me through. And again, you know, in A&E, the minimum time is four hours. Well, I got seen in 20 minutes. Um prepped for biopsy um because i said look we need to do a biopsy because 
there's something up with your kidneys. We don't know what just yet, but we need to do biopsy. Well, they did a biopsy 24 hours later, basically said you've got end stage renal failure. End stage. End stage. When I heard that, I was like, I'm dying. That's all I heard. I didn't hear anything else. He didn't even say death, but I, that's what I heard. That's how you kind of took it. Yep. And my auntie was with me and he's talking whilst I've literally just gone to shutdown mode. And I said, I cannot die right now. I need to finish this degree. Totally. So this is not how I'm going to go. No way. And he's talking about, you know, you can have a transplant, you can be on dialysis. It's giving me all the options. But, you know, you just, I just didn't want to hear yeah. it. Yeah. I didn't want to hear it. Um, but I calmed down and I said, right, okay, well, when can I start uni again? Because that for me was my priority. And he said, no, I don't think you really understand at this present moment that, you know, this is quite serious. We do need to sort of educate you on what we're going to do next, what happens to you next. So left hospital, um, they ran the test of how and why my kidneys have failed, but it came back unknown. And they did a biopsy three times, and three times it came back unknown cause. So they have no idea how and why these have failed. Um, but anyway, went into clinic and I was on 15% function at that time. And that was April, 2006, um, August, 2006 booked holiday to go, to go to Spain two days before I was due to fly out. I got called into emergency because they did regular blood tests and said, we need to fit you with your catheter for your dialysis because you are now on 6% function. So from April to August, so four months, it just sort of completely declined. So obviously they didn't know at what speed my kidneys were failing until that moment. Um, So I got prepared for dialysis. Um, I had to go and educate myself how to use this machine, which I was going to be plugged into every night for eight hours. Um, And that's until I got a transplant. So, you know, that was whenever. So this was my way of life at that time. Um, can't hear you i'm sorry sorry let me just say that again um, and come off mute i was just i just wanted to interrupt you and say and i'm mindful of the time left on this interview Mm -hmm. what was the primary mindset shift or change in your in your way of thinking that was your coping mechanism with that stage well i think for me i've always been like i don't expect miracles to happen So I lived life as if this is my lot at the time. So I just got on with dialysis. I never saw it as a burden and I never saw it as. You didn't feel uh, you didn't feel the sense of grudgery or like, why me again? Or I I hate God or I hate this for you didn't see. I hated God for a long time anyway. Hmm. Um, More so because I, in my eyes, he took my beauty away at the time. Um, not even the loss for me, it was the beauty. Right. But even during that time of dialysis, I just got on with it. Cause I thought who knows when the transplant's going to happen. You know, it's just a like a piece of string. How long is it really? So I got on with life and that was just always me. Mm. Um, and then when I got my transplant, which was now three years later, just graduated, got a phone call for my transplant. And I basically was in the middle of renovating my house <sighs> That's how much I was living my life. Do you know, it was just getting on. You were just getting on. Completely getting on and renovating, got the phone call. I said, well, how long have I got to let you know? Because I've got builders and architects tomorrow. He goes, well, this is your life. I was like, right, I guess I better come in then. Yeah. How long do I have to stay? And I was very practical about all of this. 
And I was even throughout the whole transplant. It was very practical. I love that. I get, I get that sense about you. Um, for our audience out there, cause I really want to get into the heart of a couple of the strategies cause you've got so much, um, Shakti, so much energy that you've used to overcome these various obstacles. Um, how important is this attitude of practicality and what particular advice would you give to our audience in terms of embracing practicality in a way to not just survive, but to thrive? I mean, look, my, my main thing that really changed for me during all of this really, and that's, I suppose, sums up a lot of it is lying in hospital after my transplant, really ill, it came to me that no matter what I'm doing, textbook right, you know, drinking right amount, what, all of this, whatever I can't control, I need to let go. I need to surrender. Powerful. And that's, to me, is when God came to me at that moment, really where powerful. I thought, who, who do I let my burdens onto? Like, who do I give them to? And that's when it came to me that whatever I can't control, I'm going to give it into his hands or her hands or whatever you believe. And from that moment, a lot of things started to just fall in place. So then I felt like I don't have to hold on to everything. I don't have to be in control of everything. What I can control, i.e. how much I drink or eat, that I can do. Or what happens on a cellular level, I can't control that at this present moment. So that got me through. But in terms of practicality, I guess I've always been very, very, you know, military with certain things. Mm -hmm. I think very A to B, B to C. You know, there's no sort of, let's not miss anything out. I'm very organized Mm -hmm. and in my head, I'm very compartmentized, you know, very structure. And that keeps me going. But that did keep me going because sometimes it did feel me, myself and I. So if I have to look after myself... I've got to make sure I'm covered in every aspect, mind, body, soul, emotion. So you can imagine lots going on in this head, you know. Yeah. Um, But then as time has gone on and here we are today, you know, that's that essence that I've used where I can't, Mm -hmm. where I've surrendered. I don't carry all that stuff anymore. And due to that, my health has improved. I feel amazing. I'm breathing life. I, I mean, life is just so beautiful. Like, Amazing. It, it saddens me if somebody says it, it, it's not a nice life or it's hard or it's hectic. Of course it's hard. No one's exempt from pain and suffering. No one. But right. it's what we do with it yeah. is what is essential here. You know, um, you can be a victim or you can be a survivor. In my eyes, that's, that's pretty much how it is. And Love that. Because we all have suffering in our own ways, but it's how we treat it, right? Yeah. Like I said, you know, we're not exempt from it. You know, whatever, whatever we want to call pain, pain. And pain is such a personal journey. But what we can't do is take it away from anyone because that would stop us taking away an experience for that person. And I would never do that, you know. Um, yeah, I hear you. I hear you, I guess. And I know this is a hard question, but let me ask you directly. Do you feel that the tragedies and the challenges that you've had to experience in these short, you know, less than 40 years of your life mm-hmm. have played a positive role to shape you in the person that you are today. Completely. I mean, if somebody asked me, I mean, what would you change? Nothing. Wow. I do all of it again. Wow. All of it. Yeah. All that of is it. profound, Dulcie. Complete from the loss to when I broke my ankle, which was really debilitating to my kidneys, just the whole package. Um, Because each of them have brought so many different learnings and concepts to where I am today. Is there there a piece of wisdom here then that that, that we can kind of share with the viewers and listeners here that by not running away from the suffering that comes our way despite us trying not to suffer that is to say the suffering that comes to us through no fault of our own yeah by not running away from that and kind of embracing it and kind of going through it that we can actually make powerful shifts in our consciousness and our kind of attitude most definitely you got to ride that wave you know and got to ride that wave like 
not all waves are very soft and flowy. Some are like full on and intense and some kind of very mellow and sort of chilled. But each of them are your own waves, you know. They're not comparative to your neighbor. They're not comparative to your partner. They're not comparative to your family. It's just your own. I think that's another point you've just hit on there as well. I, I mean, we could go on for ages and I'm mindful of <laughs> us getting towards the close of this short interview. Um, but this touches on another point, the comparison disease of our problems versus other people's problems. We always somehow seem to think that some other person's problems are less than ours or that our problems are somehow magically, you know, magnificently greater. I think you, you, you mm-hmm. exemplified that with the example of that boy. You said that, that, that young lad climbed over, mm-hmm. and, you know, you thought, well, hang on, if he can climb over, why can't I? Yeah. And I think there is a tendency for human beings. And unfortunately, this internet culture, um, this online culture makes it all the more evident that other people seem to be doing okay. We don't actually see what's going on behind the scenes. No, we don't realize a person's suffering. And I think if I'm hearing you in the way I'm feeling you, then what you're saying is don't run away from your pain. No, work through it, walk through the ride through that way. Because by the thing is we suppress what we do, two things. We're great at distracting ourselves and Mm -hmm. deviating ourselves from the pain. So if something's too painful, we'll try and avoid it. If it's a death in the family, a lot of people will turn to substance abuse or just ignore it or just do a little coping session, one or two sessions with a psychologist, maybe. I mean, that's great. And then they're done. But there's no real mourning. There's no working through that emotion, Dorsey. And I think that's what you're trying to get at, right? Yeah, completely. Like, look, life is like the five stages of grief, you know? You, you go through the denial and all the other stages. But if you do stage one and five, you miss three, two, three, and four, you're going to have to go back. That's the reality. So even if you are running away from pain or, you know, sort of diverting yourself, there will come a stage where you're going to have to, you're going to, have to come that. back. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing. I had gone through the denials. I had gone through, let's kind of swerve this pain and jump over it. But life kept taking me back to that point and saying, no, you need to heal that in order to excel where you're going. And that is where I am today. I'm, I have been healing and I did go down the substance abuse route um, from a young age, but at the end of the bottle or at the end of a Coke line, there was no answer. It was empty, right? Spirituality came because I had answers like what's going on here. Right. So I I was very into karmic laws and stuff. So I was like, what's going on? Cause at the age of 10, what have I done on such an extreme time? Totally get that. Totally get that. Um, and I know I, I turned the same way. Um, I lost my mom when I was 12, just nearly 13. And uh, she passed away at the age of 43, younger than I am now. And that was mm. really shocking for me. Um, nobody expected it to happen. And I blamed God for a long time. I went through this stage and then it hit me. Wait a second. Her karma was her karma. That yeah. was her path. And I think understanding it from a philosophical and a spiritual perspective really it was actually the catalyst to eliminating the dangers of other temptations that would have taken me away from uh, embracing that pain and working through it and mm. numbing it instead through substance abuse, bad company, um, yeah. just wasting life. Yeah, agreed. So, you know, for me, it was a no-brainer, like going down the spiritual route and exploring different spirituality, different religions, different ways. And Love that. It's what I've grown. That's how I've grown. Um, what, what, what top one or two tips, Dulce, would you say to people who feel that their life sucks right now? Um, it's, it's pain. You're, you're suffering pain in the here and now, in the here and now, but this is not forever. Right. That's one, not a forever pain. And totally. it's that you can work through, but you've you got to give yourself love and compassion. You've got to you got to be kind. If you're not kind, then it's just going to get more tougher. And often or not is these pressures we give ourselves, but we carry from society and other people, but we've got to work through our own. So I think standing in your own authenticity really serves well. You have to stand in your own truth because that is, you're not fighting anyone else. Then you're giving yourself that time, the time to heal. You're giving you the time to see things from a different perspective 
and you're not trying to rush through life. I think that's another thing. We're always rushing through life. Yeah, totally. I mean, we do because we're, we, we, it's, it's the cultural, it's the cultural condition that we have that mm-hmm. co- causes us to want to move on to the next fix, the next thing. Yeah. It's once yeah. you finish, you finish Game of Thrones, right? Want to move on to Big Bang Theory? You finish that, yeah. you want to move on to the next thing. It's the next flicks. It's like the Netflix mindset. Everybody wants to move on from one box set or one TV series or movie to another, and you're not yeah. actually spending time to sit still, not look at anything, and just see a blank canvas. Where mm-hmm. I guess putting it in your words, where you can actually go inside and ask yourself, um, like that famous song. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. That should really be asked about yourself, is what you're saying. That, the mirror should be turned on yourself there. Yeah. What things about you do you love? What things does Dulcie love about herself, despite her appearance, her, her organs not working properly? Was that part of that journey that's brought you Most definitely. tough skin that you have now? Yeah, mostly because I started to see what others saw in me. So, you know, like the reflection we spoke about earlier where my family accepted me or people accepted right. me. I did. I was okay. like, what are they looking at? Let me see what they're looking at. Let me see from right. their eyes. From their eyes. Love that. From their eyes. And if you, this is how empathy works because we live in other people's shoes and experience their world, right? And that's what I was trying to do in my world. Mm-hmm. How, I'm, how I'm living in my world from an outside perspective. And it makes me sad that I, it really makes me sad that the young 10, 12, 14 year old girl, girl was feeling that low because that's not who, how I feel today. And it makes me sad that that's how she felt. And well, I do talk to her because I give her healing. She, good. I, I think that's, a, that, that's something that people may laugh at and scoff at. People may not understand the idea, the concept of talking to your inner child, to your youthful yeah. self. And sadly, that's uh, unfortunately a large part attributable to movies and pop culture um, making a joke of t- the inner child. Yeah. And yet there's so much proof in it and there's so much truth to be gained, which actually leads me to one of my parting questions. What advice would the Tulsi sitting with us, radiant and brave and Shakti filled in front of us today. What advice would that Dulcie give the young Dulcie who had just become a victim? Well, you know, life's going to teach you a lot of things, but just know that whatever's happened to you is going to be the making of you and just ride it, ride it out. It's going to be tough, but ride it out. Use some of your time in life to appreciate yourself and go inside to look for things that you can love about yourself. Give yourself compassion. Be kind to yourself. You've talked about the need to surrender and let go of the things that you can't, like the Lord's Prayer. Lord, grant me the strength to embrace the things that I can change and surrender the things that I can't. Um, Learning to surrender. Is there an element of trust here, Dulcie? Does trust play a part in this? Completely. You have. I mean, if you trust the universe, you trust God, that fundamentally fundamentally means you've got to trust yourself right and you know yourself only you truly know yourself you know what you're capable of or not and you know for me i guess another thing is if you're authentic and if every single one of us are authentic there's a place in this world for all of us every single one of us matter you know we're all Love part that. of this bigger picture so i and you are not the same people we are the same in terms of universal connection but our experiences and what we bring to the world is what makes us unique and special. Love that. And we should celebrate that and not be divided by that. I love that because, um, who is it? Um, Oscar Wilde or, uh, Ralph Marks who said, be yourself, be yourself because everyone else is taken. Is taken. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. And this journey is mine and mine alone, you know, and I'm, I own every single bit of it and I love, I love it. that you just touched on another theme and I just, I, we're running out of time, but I just want to touch on it. You talked about ownership there. You said that big O word, not the O word. Some of you guys are thinking about on this call right now on this interview. It's another O word. That O word is another whole thing, but the real <laughs> O word is ownership. Um, give, give, give me a quick view on this the importance of ownership and owning what you have given I mean, all that you've been through i mean look we always we live in a world where we want to give other you know we never want to take responsibilities for our actions our thoughts our behavior but the thing is own them they're yours 
you know they're yours they make you you i mean look there's a good band of the ugly about me you know there's a shadow side of me and there's a light side of me but we need both right we need the light and the shadow but i own my shadow i don't run away from it it's mine you know that's what is the essence of me as well and so that is i'm taking full ownership and full responsibility for who i am what i say what i do my actions my behavior they're mine that's just that's just beautiful and i'm just sharing that with the group and the audience right now as we speak <laughs> so powerful we've talked about ownership we've talked about surrender we've talked about loving oneself we've talked about belief and trust and these powerful keys i hope in summation for you the viewers the listeners i hope these keys will find a way into your hearts and your intellect and that you can use them to emulate the kind of success that you deserve Dorsey, would you like to share anything else? No, I mean, look, just guys, you've got to just, you know, take full ownership of yourself and just know you're doing the best you can. What you know now is not what you knew 10 years ago or even five years ago. And it's okay. Don't be hard on what it was like in the past. The past is the past. But we're here now and we're here trying our best to just be a better person and just acknowledge that, I think. It's a key thing. Acknowledge and also celebrate how far you've come. Don't sort of dismiss it, but we should celebrate the good stuff, you know, and really take ownership of that. I think really acknowledge that where I was a year ago and where I am today, it's huge. It's, it's a huge difference. Yeah, and it's not a measurement. It's not like saying, you know, I did 60,000 of this or five. It's nothing. It's not a measurement, but it's, you're in a better place than you were then. From where you were to where you are. Yeah, completely. And then simply rinse and repeat. Yep. <laughs> Go on again and again. Dulcie, where can the world find out about you? What's on Dulcie's radar for 2019? Well, I've got my own website, so it's Um This year, I'm writing my book. I'm traveling a lot. It's my 40th birthday this year. Yay. And I'm in the midst of setting up my own charity where I want to do spiritual empowerment for children. So teaching them to become leaders rather than followers, which is what we grew up to be. Yeah, totally. And and getting, uh, hopefully they're not at an age where they're going to be healing their inner child because they will just be leaders and be healed. Um, so yeah, and that's where I'm at at the moment. And that should take me up until July. <laughs> I'll take you up to July. So we could be, we will be interviewing you again uh, as that book, as that book starts to manifest, which I know, and I have every confidence that it will. It's happening. Uh, and, I, it's happening. And, I, and I dare say it'll take you to faraway lands to share your message of hope of a thriving and of self-belief that has shaped you to be the person that you are today. Yeah. And, you know, inspired us over this past hour. I'm, I'm totally thrilled. I mean, like, look, for me, it's massive because like what I said earlier, you know, I hated God because I took, thought he took <clears throat> my beauty. But what I learned was I had to do it from the inside out. And how many people in this world are really blessed to be able to do that, right? Like they right. will fight to do that. So he took my physical beauty to help me find my inner beauty. Inner beauty. And here I am now accepting it. And this is another thing that I'm very passionate about. I'm around inspirational models who have been through so much adversity, you know, and they're flying the flags of like inner empowered feelings and emotions, regardless of scars or anything. And that's what I want to give to people. That's what I really want to give. Love that. Thank you, Tulsi. Tulsi, it's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, forgive me, folks, uh, for my coughing bouts. Um, I'm unwell, but I was determined to make sure this interview happens and this wisdom reaches all of you out there in this early start to the new year because if there was ever a time to hear messages of hope and triumph from somebody who's walking the walk and who's been there and who's suffered, then that time is now. It's been this week. So it's been a delight and an honor. Forgive me for any sound problems. Dulcie, it's been amazing to be with you. I hope you've had as much fun as I have. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. And folks, I just want to leave with just a couple of fantastic news for all of you out there. We're going to carry on this journey. We'll be interviewing more guests as the weeks unfold. So stay tuned. If you haven't already done it, done already, especially to Dulcie's followers here, 
and everyone else who's listening from around the world, make sure you like our Mantra Therapy page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Mantra Therapy. Share some love with Dulcie's page as well, if you haven't done also already. She's out there on Facebook as well. Make sure you do that. And in addition to liking us on Facebook, we're on Insta, and we're always putting inspirational quotes on mantra underscore therapy. Follow us. Saturday, the 19th of January, we have limited spaces. We're going to be celebrating the New Year's with a spiritual uplifting, energetic night of wisdom, meditation, all the great stuff that we do at a mantra therapy. Dulce, if you are around, you might have gone by then. In fact, you will have gone by then. We'll have to wait till you're back. But the Saturday, the 19th, there are 30 spaces of which 20 remain. So grab a ticket if you want to join us on the mantra therapy New Year special on Saturday, the 19th of Jan. And then fast forward a couple of months and we will be going to Buckland Hall for our annual detox and transformational retreat from the 8th to the 11th of March. Many of you know about it already. Many of you have been on it. We're delighted to welcome everybody who hasn't. Come and join us and we're going to be doing a whole weekend of personal immersion, transformational work, great chill out times. Did I mention Garba, Dandia Garba at night and Bollywood <laughs> movies after midnight? Walking around in your gym jams at midnight and drinking hot chalk. Anyway, it's going to be an awesome time meeting great people. If you want to be surrounding yourself with quality people, like Dulce has described this in an interview, then that will be a chance for you to do so. So watch out for that. Many more things coming your way as well. And last but not least, if you haven't already, check out our membership program, Ping Us. Join us in our Mantra Therapy Inner Circle, where we'll be doing live coaching, one-on-one coaching, and weekly meditations and group training sessions with everybody so that we can gradually just bring out the best in ourselves in 2019 with real people and no American rah-rah. So make sure you join us. That's what we're in store. If you want to find out more about the membership, check us out, ping us a message. Dulcie, it's just been a pleasure. want to wish you an incredible flight back, flight out to Australia. May you have an incredible time and may you continue to touch the lives of people, strangers and family members, the way you've touched our lives in just this one hour. Thank you so much, Dulcie. Thank you. Folks, take care. Crash out. We'll catch you real soon. Namaste. Look forward to it. Share the love. Take care. Bye now. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And as with all our episodes, found something to inform, inspire, and empower you in your spiritual and personal journeys in life. As always, if you enjoyed it, feel free to leave a little love through your ratings and comments, share it with those who you care about, and take your personal and spiritual evolution to the next level by joining us on one of our events, workshops, or retreats. Find out more about us at mantratherapy.co.uk. I'm your host, Prash K. This is Urban Spirituality, and we will catch you on the next episode.